If you have your Bible this morning, turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4, we have uh, been, as I've mentioned earlier, Kathy and I have been gone seeing that seventh grandchild of ours, uh, Eleanor Josephine Myrick, living in Pflugerville, Texas, just outside of Austin, and we've had a great time uh, getting to be with uh, Eleanor and with our daughter Liz, son-in-law Sam, and of course the, the two boys, Nico and Lincoln. Lincoln is our almost seven-year-old who has uh, Down syndrome. And it's, uh, it's hectic being around little kids again. Uh, they cry in the night. They do terrible things in their diapers. They, uh, they do terrible things anyway. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's different. Uh, somebody said, are you glad to be back? Part of me gets left every time I leave. The last thing I do before we go to the airport is hold that baby just one more time. But I have to admit, when I come back, not all of me comes. I love you guys, but I love those grandkids and love my kids. And so, uh, are we glad to be back? Eh, modified, yes. It's less humid. Okay. Kingdom workers, we're talking about beating discouragement. This is uh, something that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, I come from a family that has battled with this. My mother actually was hospitalized for over a week. Uh, she had a nervous breakdown. She, she battled not just discouragement, but clinical depression uh, and has struggled on and off with it for the rest of her life. She was in her mid-40s when that happened. I come from a family where it's easy to be discouraged. Uh, I come from a family with uh, several of us being pastors, and that's not always the easiest job. Uh, and so I have battled discouragement sometime. And then on top of all of that, to think of this week with uh, another example of the clinical depression with Robin Williams and his tragic suicide, uh, a man who made me laugh many times, one of my favorite movies, a uh, uh, couple of my favorite movies uh, that, that he has been in. So I, it's just really a hard thing to think about this. And I planned this weeks before. I planned this long before uh, we left on vacation, and so it's, it's one of those things that we're talking about, beating discouragement. And, and just to give you a recap, maybe some of you have been gone as well, and it's been a couple of weeks. We, we started in this book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a man uh, who was, he hears news of the destroyed walls of Jerusalem, and it's been this way for years, for up to 150 years, and, and he reminds God of his promises, and then he begins to pray and ask God to use him. And then the second week in this study, we, we saw uh, Nehemiah make three vital decisions, absolutely incredible decisions. First of all, to choose to wait on the Lord, but then he also chose to ask God to provide the, the provisions and the permission. And so he asked for God's provision, and then he chose to, to do his homework, to, to be ready to cast the vision that needed to be cast, and, and so that's what happened. We're not going to look at Nehemiah chapter 3. This is your homework assignment for, this, for the afternoon to read all of the names of the people who built the wall. It's not that they're not important. There's two reasons I don't, I don't read them. Number one, we don't know exactly how they were pronounced, but however they are pronounced is not how I would pronounce them. A lot of old Hebrew Persian names, and they're not names that are common to us, but I want to just point out that that the categories there is that they were perfume makers, and they were druggists, and they were storekeepers, and they were people who did everything except construction. There were no carpenters, there were no stonemasons, there were no uh, 
construction generals. There were the, none of the people who built the wall in Nehemiah were people that you would expect to build. And what's also interesting is that there are just as many women and children named just about as men. So it wasn't that the guys decided they would go build the wall. And we've talked about this before. The stones weighed 40 to 60 pounds per stone. Some of them weighed in a lot more than that. But most of them weighed at least 40 to 60 pounds. And so this was incredibly difficult work. Now, have you ever started a project and you get to a point where you get discouraged. You, you ever started a project and you, and you think, you, you, you know, you're this, this far in life and all of a sudden you just want to quit. Um, I ran across this. In fact, one of my pastor friends, Jerry Westcott, gave this to me years ago. These are the six stages of every project. Now listen to this. The first stage is wild enthusiasm. You announce it and everybody goes, yeah. The second stage is disillusionment. He wanted to do what? The third is total confusion goes from wild enthusiasm to total confusion. The fourth stage is you search for the guilty. The fifth stage is you punish the innocent. And the, the last stage is you reward those who never even took part in the project to begin with. I love that. That's the way a lot of projects go. You know, you start with this wild enthusiasm. By the time you're done, you're, you're rewarding those who didn't have anything to do with it. But in contrast to that, in the Bible, we see that God has a time for us to do those things that will honor him with our lives, with our talents, with our abilities, even abilities that we didn't know that we had as, as a perfumist or a druggist or a storekeeper to lift heavy stones and put them into place. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the, to the work of of the Lord because you know and this last phrase is the one that you need to remember that your labor in the Lord is not in vain your labor in the Lord is never in vain and that's the part that we struggle with sometimes and here's where I'm going with this message just so you can get the bottom line and uh, for those of you that are going to check out here in a couple of minutes then, then you'll know where we're going this is where we're going we defeat discouragement when we put God's plan into our lives. We, we can only defeat discouragement when we put God's plan into motion in our lives. You see, discouragement is kind of like a flat tire. You can ignore it, but you're still going to have to deal with it. If you ignore a flat tire, it's still flat. You have to fix it. You have to air it back up. And when you're discouraged, when you're depressed, when you get to this point, you can't just ignore it. And so we need a plan of action, and God's plan of action is the one that needs to, to be put into our lives. Uh, take a look at Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. We're going to, first of all, look at attacking discouragement at the source. If, if we're going to, do, to defeat it, we're going to have to attack it. We're going to have to fix it. We begin by fixing it at the source. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. When Sam Ballot, he is the guy who was critical before, and he is a, he's a high-ranking official uh, there from Samaria. When Sam Ballot heard that we were build, rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. Those, those are very powerful words. He wasn't just annoyed. He was, he was furious. Look at what it says. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates, and get this, and the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? And again, that's a slam against God. 
Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, if even a fox climbed on it, he would break down their wall of stones. And again, what a slam. The fox is known as having the lightest tread of any animal, hardest to to track because they don't leave very many tracks. Look at what it says in verse 4. Nehemiah's response, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. He's praying. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked, get this, with all their heart. But when Samballot, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and, by, and the men of Ashdod, get this, Samballot's from the north, from Samaria, uh, the Arabs are from the south, Ammonites are from the east, and the men of Ashdod are from the west. They're surrounded all four sides. They have this coalition. They're going to attack Jerusalem from all four sides. When they heard the repairs to Dr- Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. I love this next verse. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, Before they know it or see it, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. This is, this is not just a small problem. This is not a wrinkle. This is not a hiccup. This is not a bump in the road. This is a bridge out. This is a time when the people that Nehemiah had under his leadership, they realized that they could not go any further. They were done. They were toast. They, they were gone with this. I, I, I ride bicycles, and, and, and I've admitted that discouragement is something that I struggle with in my life. And I, and I found out something a long time ago. It's, I, I do love to ride a bicycle, but I ride a bicycle because when I get off the bicycle, I feel encouraged. It's a physical thing that happens to me, and I know it has to do with the, the endorphins and this and that and all of that. Uh, but I haven't found anything else that replaces that. And when I get done with a bike ride, I'm as encouraged as I can be. And, and so that's one of the reasons I do that. And they didn't have anything like that. But I also know that on a bike ride, I have gotten out from time to time when I didn't take enough water or I didn't take enough sustenance. And I'm going up a hill, say, to Shasta Dam. One of my favorite places to ride is up to Shasta Dam. And you get halfway up the hill, and we do what we call bonking. You know what a bonk is? It means you can't pedal another step. In fact, you, be, you get wobbly on your legs, and literally you get to the point where you're ready to pass out. And you say, well, Pastor, why would you push yourself that hard? Because I am a guy. That's what we do. We're, we're too stupid to know better. But I've seen a lot of people do that, and you get to the point, well, these people had bonked. They had gotten to the point that they could not lift another stone. This was desperate for them. So what did they do? And there's three things that we see here, and I, and I think that we need to see this. Number one is we need to stay strong. 
You know, say, well, that's easier said than done. I mean, what do you do when you're, when you're at your physical limits when, you, when you're done? Well, we need to understand we're weak. When you've bonked on a bicycle, the first thing you have to do is you have to realize, I need to get off the bicycle. I need to stop. I need to get fluid. I need to get sugar. I need to get carbs. Somehow, my body is starving, and I need to do something for my body. And spiritually, we need to do the same thing because that's where it starts. When Nehemiah was confronted by this governor of Syria, of Samaria, and the army, here he is, he's a nobody, he's a a cupbearer, he's the guy who tastes the wine to make sure the king doesn't get killed, he's not some elected official, he's not some high muckety-muck, he's a nobody that's being confronted by a governor, and he has to stand up to him, so what does he do? He's been humiliated. He's been ridiculed. They, they say feeble is the, the Hebrew word malal, which means withered. It's like dead flowers. It, it's like a flower that doesn't have enough strength to hold itself up. When he says that they, they won't be able to offer sacrifices, it's implying that God was powerless along with them. And he talks about their wall of stones. That's actually not true. It's God's wall of stones. God is the one who's doing this. But they didn't get it. So how can we stay strong? What does Nehemiah do? He prays. The first thing he does when he's attacked is he prays. He comes back to the Lord. And and if you notice what he prays, it's not a real nice prayer. He says, turn their insults, on verse 4, hear us, O, O, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt. Don't forgive them. Don't blot out their sins from your sight. They've thrown insults in your face and our face. This is, I mean, there are times I'm reading through the Old Testament and New Testament again this year, and, and I've been reading through the Psalms, and they're what they call imprecatory Psalms. And the imprecatory Psalms are basically, Lord, beat them up. Lord, one point it says, tear their arms off and beat them with their arms. We don't usually pray that on Sunday morning right before we take the offering, do we? But God put it in the Bible, and God allowed Nehemiah's prayer to be there. He realizes how serious this is, and he's begging God. He's, I mean, he's furious with these people. And God can take it when you're furious. He, he can take it when you pour your heart out in front of God. He can take it. He's not going to be offended by you saying, God, I don't see any hope here. And I just assume you just fry these people. Now, if you're praying that every time you get in your car to drive, that might be another issue. If you're praying, Lord, take this person in front. No, don't pray that kind of stuff, okay? But pray. Ask God. Ask God. Romans 12, 19 says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. There's a time to turn the other cheek. There's a time when we are to be loving and forgiving. There's a time to ask God to intervene on our behalf. And he asked God to give them strength. He asked God to do what they could not do. And the truth is, when we get discouraged, when we get depressed, many times it's because we're trying to do something in our strength that we cannot do. I'm going to be... Some of you won't like this message, and that's okay. Okay, you can just write it down. Bad message from pastor. Go ahead and write it on the, on the deal. I'm going to be real honest with you. The, the most discouraging thing for me as a pastor is when I pour my heart into somebody, into a family, into a life, 
and I feel like they didn't listen and they go ahead with the train wreck of their life. The biggest discouragement for me is when I pray week after week and month after month that God would bring people to Jesus Christ and I don't see any results because I'm trying to do it in my own strength. I've got news for you. I can't save a single person. There's nobody in this world that I can save. All I can do is point to Jesus Christ and he will save. And when I get discouraged, many times it's because I'm trying to do something that I cannot do. But you need to understand something. I love you, and I want you to be what God would have you to be. And I pour my life into you, and I pour my life into what I'm trying to do as your pastor. And when I don't see God doing it, it's discouraging. And that's where Nehemiah is. And he prayed, but you also notice he posted a guard. Because part of the spiritual wisdom is also knowing that there may be a guard that you need in your life. There may be something that you need to block out of your life right now. And maybe it's that you're hearing too many negative things from a television set or, or from something else, from other sources. And sometimes you have to block that person. He prayed and he posted a guard. Ephesians 3, 16 and 17 says it this way, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Folks, when you get to that point, when you have hit the wall, when you can't go any further, when you have bonked, when you have stopped, when you can't do anything else, you come to the Lord and you ask him to do inside you what only he can do. Because if you don't start with a spiritual aspect of your life, then the rest of it will never be right. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you don't have a relationship with him, then no amount of the physical or mental or the other part is ever going to get you there. You need a relationship with him. And that's where it starts. But I also notice that it's easier to, to keep going when you have momentum. Because the other thing that I've noticed that when I'm going uphill on a bicycle, if I stop and get the drink there, it's much harder to get going when you're going uphill. And if you can keep your momentum, if you can keep going, and that's why you need to read the Bible every day, even those days when you don't feel like it. And that's why you need to pray every day, even when you think God's not listening and it's not getting above the ceiling of this room. You still need to pray because you keep the momentum of that relationship with Jesus Christ. Here's the second part. Not only stay strong, but stay rested. It says their strength was giving out. This is the physical. The first one is the spiritual. Stay strong spiritually. The second one is physical. Stay rested. Their strength was giving out. Uh, Again, the Hebrew literally means they were stumbling, they were staggering, they were exhausted. The wall was about half done. We got down to our kids' home in Pflugerville, and and they had a a fence that they'd had some wind come through, and the fence was falling down, and it needed repair. And uh, the other in-laws, and we got together, they supplied some money, we gave some money, I did the labor, and I put up about 53 feet of fence, including six new fence posts that you dug down about two feet. And taking out fence posts is one of my favorite things in the world to do. I lie. Uh, it's, it's hard work, and I didn't have all of the tools I would have at my house, and so it was a little tougher, and I got about halfway done with putting those fence pickets back up, you know, 
not that I remember, but it was 168 of them. So it was, I mean, it was a long fence, and I was, you know, I, and I don't nail things, and I didn't have a nailer anyway, so I was screwing every one of them in three different places, six screws, 168, you do the math. It was a lot of work. And it was 90-something degrees, and it was about 90% humidity, and I was just drenched, just sopping wet. And my strength was gone. Physically, I needed, Kathy came out and she said, why don't we get some lunch? And I said, great idea. And sometimes you just need to stop. The wall was half done in a few days. They were sprinting. They were trying to finish instead of of taking it at a sustainable pace. They they were trying to hurry. I'll never forget when I was in, in high school, I was, I was a decent sprinter. I played football, I, but I never went out for track because, you know, more than one lap around the, the track was just more than I could do. And I came out one day. I was a little late getting dressed out for, for the, the gym class. And I came out, and the coach said, on your mark, get set, go. And everybody took off running around the track. And I, as I went by the coach, he did this. And I thought, one lap around, I can do this. I caught up with the body of the guys. And I thought, man, I'm running good today. I'm feeling, I feel no pain. And we came around, and I got to the last turn, and I realized I was toward the beginning of the pack. I thought, I've never won ever in this. And so, man, I put on a burst of speed like you've never seen a big fat boy do. I mean, it was incredible. And nobody came with me. And I came across at least 10 yards in front of everybody else. And the coach says, good job, Knight. Three more to go. He was just pointing out that that was the first of four laps, and I didn't get the signal. And that's how we live our life. We're sprinting, thinking that we're finished with the race, and we're just beginning, and we're out of strength. I did not win the race that day, by the way. I walked the last lap, I think. Physical exhaustion is discouraging, and Satan loves to keep us so busy and so physically exhausted that we lose heart. God's plan from the beginning was a day of rest. Do you remember that? He created in six days, and on the seventh day, God rested. And then he told us to take a Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath is Friday night to Saturday, and some of you are thinking that Sunday is your day of rest, but it's, it's really not. But you need to find a day at some point where you take a day of rest. I've got news for you. I take every Friday and as much of Saturday off as I can as a pastor to do some things around the house, but also to try to take some time when I recharge my batteries because that's okay. I served with a a, a pastor uh, many years ago in Amarillo, Texas, and he always told everybody, I haven't had a vacation in 11 years. And people would say, oh, he's so godly. And his marriage blew up. And his ministry was over. And his kids didn't like him. Because it wasn't godly, it wasn't right, it wasn't biblical. We need to take the time to rest. And and we don't understand that. Psalm 91.1, look at what it says. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And, And we don't understand that, but God made us with a capacity, but there's also a time to sit back and say we need to rest, we need to take some time off. When's the last time you rested? When's the time you really, the last time you physically felt recharged? And here's the third one, stay focused. Not only stay strong, which is the spiritual, to stay rested, which is the physical, but stay focused, which is the mental. And this, this may be the toughest one of all. If you remember, it says that as they were going, all they could see is there's so much rubble. Verse 10 
the strength of their laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. This wall literally had had huge fires, and the fire was so hot that it had cracked some of the limestone, some of the stones, so that they weren't reusable, and the wall and some of the, the actual stones themselves had been so superheated that it, that it cracked them and, and destroyed them. And they were having to clear this rubble as they were going through, and, and, and just all they could see were the problems. They were half done. The new, newness had worn off. We go with our daughter and son-in-law to Target to return some diapers because uh, night babies, Myrick babies, aren't born small. We start out 8 pounds, 13 ounces. She was 20 inches long. By the time we left, she was 22 inches long. Two weeks, two inches. Big babies. So newborn, not so much, you know. Uh, the doctor told us when Jonathan, our youngest son, was born, why don't you just have him walk up to the nursery? So you understand, we don't have these little tiny little fragile babies. They start out big, and so she's this big baby, and they were returning diapers. And I said, well, you know, what do you, we're going to take these two packages of newborns back and get ones and twos. And I said, well, how many comes in a package? A hundred. I said, a hundred diapers? That'll last you a long time. And not so much. Not when we started being around there. The newness wears off real quick on changing diapers. The newness wears off and, and all of a sudden some of the work. And, but do you focus on the diapers or do you focus on the baby? You're not changing diapers. You're caring for someone that you love. Do you focus on the rubble or the results? Do you focus on the imminent attack or the accomplishments? Do you focus on defeat or the determination to do what God's given you to do? What do we focus on? In, in verse 6, it says the people worked with all their hearts. And by the time we get to verse 10, they says we can't do it anymore. Mentally, they were, they were gone. We focus on all the wrong things. And when we focus on the wrong things, what happens? It's never good. We think it's innocent, but it, it's the worst thing that can happen to us. Chuck Swindoll tells a, a hilarious story. It's a true story. Uh, a, a young mother or a mother by the name of Edith had eight children. She came in one day, and five of them were huddled around in the, in the kitchen. And Edith, she lived in Massachusetts, I believe it was. It was uh, Darlington, uh, Maryland. Darlington, Maryland. And they're huddled around in the kitchen, and her mother, the, the mother couldn't see what the kids were doing. And they said, what are you doing? They said, we're playing with our new pets. And she looked down, and there were five children and five baby skunks. And she, she panicked, and she said, children, run! And all five grabbed a skunk and ran. If you focus on skunks, maybe that's why your life stinks. If you focus on what seems to be an, an innocent thing, it's going to make your life really complicated at any moment. And we live so much of our life focused on the wrong things. And the Lord, time after time is in Scripture, is trying to say, no, focus on me. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let, our fix, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The next time you see that wall, realize that God is above the wall. The next time that you think that you can't go one more step and you're focused on all the rubbish, focus on Jesus. 
It's what he's asked us to do. I ran across this, uh, it's called In the Arena. Teddy Roosevelt ran across it years ago, and I've kept it on my desk for many, many years. It's, I have a pile of things that when I get discouraged, I read them. This is what Teddy Roosevelt said in this speech called In the Arena. And it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, who does actually try to do the deed, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotion, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. And God wants us to be in the arena and realizing that when we get there, we focus not on the arena and the dust and the sweat and the blood, but we focus on the one who called us into his service. Here's the other half of this. Attack discouragement, not only at the source, but with God's strategy. We're going to look at the last part of this. I know we don't have a lot of time, but look at Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 13 uh, through 23. This is what it says. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families. What a brilliant tactic. He, he brings the families together and says, you guys work together with their swords and spears and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Why? Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot, that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried the materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Now get this. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us, serve us as guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. I mean, these guys were prepared these guys were all in. These guys were completely committed to this. So what's God's strategy for us? What's his strategy for you today? If you're, if you're battling this discouragement, if you're battling this thing in your life, here's the first thing. Work as a team. Play your position. He divided them by families. And, and Nehemiah taught them to work together as a team. Good teammates carry their weight on the team. Good teammates do their part. And some were assigned security. I tend to think that, that he rotated it so that some who were assigned security 
maybe they were watching one day and working with the heavy rocks the next. I don't know, but, but at least there was this different assignment. And some worked with a trowel in their hand and a weapon in the other. Can you imagine that? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep my hand on the sword, but I'm going to keep here working with a trowel. I love that. When they were carrying materials, they, they had a weapon in one hand and the other hand free to, to take care of the materials. Good teammates also rally when there's a crisis. He said, I want the trumpet, the, the guy who sounds a trumpet to stay, stand with me. I'll keep the trumpeter here. Because if something happens, and we know that there was 50-some miles of wall that was completed, he could sound the trumpet, and there in Jerusalem you could hear it all over the mountaintop, and they could come running to the place where the trumpet sounded. People were spread thin. When we're spread too thin, there's a danger. It's easy for one person to, to fall, so they ran to the sound of the trumpet. They, they encouraged. Gathering together provides encouragement. I, I, you know, I got... And I don't think that we understand that all, all the time. But that's what should happen every time we come to church. But even more than that, if you want to be encouraged, sign up for Awana and watch the other adults and watch the kids come together and watch how much you learn as you're working with the kids in Awana. If you want to be encouraged, sign up for the ladies' Bible study or the ladies' ministry or the men's Bible study or the men's ministry or the, the retreat that's coming up. You sign up for one of these things and be encouraged when these other men or these other women come in these small groups and they begin to, to read through the Scripture and, and you begin to discuss things and you'll be encouraged. You'll be greatly encouraged. If you want to be encouraged, you, you come the next time we have a work day and you see what happens when we're able to, to accomplish all kinds of things here. If you want to be encouraged, get together. Be a part of this. They are in the position for God to work through them. Look at what it says again in Ephesians chapter 4. From him, that's Jesus Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love Look at that last line. As each part does its work. That's God's strategy from the very beginning. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. You're never supposed to go it alone. You're never supposed to be able to do it in your own, on your own. And we are to be a place here where you can come in and you can admit that you're struggling with discouragement or that you're you're battling depression or that you're struggling with this physical ailment or that your kids are driving you crazy. It's okay. That's why we're having the grace-based parenting class. That's why we're having construction zone. It's okay to come together and say, you know what? I didn't do the smartest thing with my money, so sign up for Dave Ramsey. Or maybe you say, I'm doing a great job with my money, but I just want to fine-tune it. Sign up for Dave Ramsey anyway. You, we it's so crazy that so many Christians feel like they can't ever tell people what's really happening. Work as a team. Number two, work for the Lord. Work for the Lord. Verse 10, if, if you saw it in Hebrew, even though it's not written as poetry, it rhymes. The strength of the laborers is, is given, giving out. There is so much rubble and we cannot rebuild the wall. Our strength is giving out, rubble all about, can't rebuild the wall. It's this rhyme. And it's a slogan. Uh, just do it. Uh, you deserve a break today. Who said that? You deserve a break today. So get out and get away. See, y'all know this, don't you? To McDonald's, yeah. 
We, we know these things. And, and they, had, they were inf- infiltrating the Jews with these slogans, you can't do it, you're out of strength, you're out of, it's too much rubble, and it's this, this rhyming slogan that was just getting in their head. It's like going in to Disney and going, it's a small world. It's a small world after all, it's a small world. Oh, I'm sorry I did that. Now I won't be able to get rid of that for three weeks. And that's exactly what happened to them. It was in their mind, and it was destroying their confidence. And the Lord says, what, is, what does Nehemiah do? He came up with his own slogan. Remember the Lord and fight for your families. Remember the Lord and fight for your families. And he gives more details, but that's really what it is. Remember the Lord and fight for your families. Remember what God can do. Because Satan would for, love for every one of us to believe that God forgot about you or he's not going to answer your prayer or he's not going to give you what you've asked for or he's not going to take away the depression or the dis- discouragement, that he's not going to help you rebuild the wall, he's not going to help you do that thing that you need in your life. Satan is always throwing his slogan at us. There's too much rubble. There's too much. God can't do it. And Nehemiah reminds us, remember the Lord. Fight for your families. Remember the Lord and fight for your families. I think it's ironic. The very criticism and the very thing that Satan used to try to destroy them actually bound them closer. Did you get that? Because before they weren't really rallying to a point. Before that, they weren't really working together as well as they they should. Before that, they weren't working as families. Before that, they weren't doing the things that God would have them to do. And when everything began to crumble around them is when God came in and said, watch what I can do with this. Criticism forced them to work better, protect each other, fight the common enemy. We have to remember why we're doing what we're doing. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. What, whatever you do, you know, pastor, I know you're a pastor, and so that's, what, that, that's for you. No, it says whatever you do, every day, when you get up, when you're brushing your teeth, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. We all have the same boss. You think you know who your boss is, and the real boss is the one who made your boss. And he's still sovereign. He's still in control. He still has all the power and all the resources in the universe. And I don't think we get that. God does not compartmentalize our life. There's no church part and then everything else. God wants to be in every part of our life. Did Nehemiah believe he could repel an army? No, but he knew God could. In fact, he says that in verse 20, our God will fight for us. The New Testament version is Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Folks, this is as practical as I can get. I don't know how else to be more practical. If you don't start with the spiritual, if you don't work on the physical, if you don't take care of the mental, if you don't go to God's strategy and begin to work as a team and put the Lord first and work for the Lord first, then you won't get there. 
Some years ago, and, and I'll close with this illustration. Some years ago, there was a young man that came to my attention, Nick Vojacek. You remember Nick Vojacek? How many of you remember that? He has no arms and no legs. He has just one little kind of a paddle foot. It's not really a leg. It's just a, a little tiny appendage. And uh, we had a video of him, and, and his testimony was an incredible testimony. And I ran across an article a couple of weeks ago that he had written, and he's talking about the fact that in 2006, he was ready to take his own life, but he just didn't know for sure how to. He was doing ministry, and he was doing quite well, and he'd made a lot of money, but he was lonely. He said, I had people come and, and help me, and I, and I had people I could pay to, to be there to clean my house and to help me in other ways, but I, but I didn't have a person. And, and he said, I cried out to the Lord, and he said, I felt, like, I, I felt like if God would just heal me, would just give me arms and legs, it would be the greatest miracle, and everybody could see me. And in 2006, he just prayed, Lord, either heal me or kill me. Either heal me or kill me. And after a period of really being depressed and really being discouraged in his life, he came to the point where he said, okay, God, if you don't want to do that, then there's three things I want. Number one, I want my ministry to go global. I don't want to just be in the U.S. anymore. He's from Australia. He says, I want to be able to go back to Australia. And if, if you really want it to go global, I can be in South America and I can be in Africa. Again, this is a man who does not have arms and legs. Travel is extremely difficult. But he said, I want my ministry to go global. Number two, I want a wife. Somebody who loves me for who I am without arms and legs. And the third one, he says, I know is impossible. I want a child. In 2009, he took his first international trip to Africa. And since 2009, Nick Vojcik has taken 17 trips around the world. This last year, in the end of 2013, he was in South America in Brazil, in one of the stadiums. They had to stop people coming in because they had 110,000 people come and hear Nick Vojcik's testimony. At one time, live, 110,000 people. And on that day, 27,000 people accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. In 2012, a woman came to Nick to pray with him after the end of the service. She admitted that she'd made a mess of her life and she didn't think that God could ever use her. And he said this to this woman, if God can use me with no arms and no legs and it's no problem for him, what makes you think he couldn't use you? They began this relationship, first of all, just communicating back and forth. And then later in the year, Nick Voracek got married. In 2013, they were blessed with a son. He told a person one time, I, I can't have a wife. I don't even have a hand to hold her hand. And the guy says, you have something more than that. You have a God that can hold her heart. They're crazy in love. And as I was reading this article, he ended up with a verse. And I want you to turn. If you have your Bible, open, open it back up again to Romans chapter 15, verse 13. This is Nick's message to you, not mine. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. He said, On that day when I was so desperate and I prayed, 
He said, my Bible fell open to this. I don't believe in reading the Bible that way, but it fell open to this. And he said, every day for the next week, it fell open to the same place. He said, that's not an accident. And this is what he read. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You may need to mark your Bible, Romans 15, 13. By the way, Nick is so funny. He said, I finally figured out that there was a crease in the page and that's why it was falling open to the same place every day. But he said, how can I crease something when I don't have hands to crease it? God must have. Let's pray. Father, I don't know who's discouraged out there today. I don't know who needed this message other than me. And I desperately needed it. I just thank you, Father, for your love and your grace and your goodness. And I thank you that you are the God of hope that will fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in you. Because it begins and it ends with you, Father. With your love, with your grace, with your strength. It's all focusing on you. It's in Jesus Christ that we find our hope, our strength, our joy, our purpose, the plan for our life. Thank you, Father, for what that means. Thank you, Father, for what you're doing in us even today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We just stand. We're going to sing a closing song as we do that. If you have a spiritual need, Steve and Jackie, wave, us, wave at us over here. Other deacons and their wives would come. If you have a spiritual need, come and sit on one of these chairs in the front. They would love to pray with you. You want somebody just to pray with you? Do that. As we sing this song, this is your time. What are you going to do with what you've just heard?